Welcome to the saving investment in the financial system part of macroeconomics. This is Dr. Terry Eland coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So this chapter here is going to introduce a few concepts and it is a chapter that starts putting a lot of things together. What we mean here is that if you've done microeconomics in the past, we often look at subjects on their own in the sense that we'll only focus on one part of the economy at a time. But in this segment here, when we start looking at financial markets, we have to look at the big picture and include a lot of information all at once. So to simplify this analysis, the first time we look at this topic we're treating the economy as a closed economy. So here, a closed economy is a country that does not trade with other countries. So there's no exchange of capital and there's no exchange of goods. It's limitative, doesn't really happen in practice, but it's a baseline that we could build on. Some of you might like to see the best picture right from the get-go, and if you do like it that way, I'd suggest you to move forward look at the chapters that kind of include it all, and then just try to see what would happen if you were to remove that net exports, that kind of trading of goods and capital component. So first off, we need to understand what's going on here. So the, the theme of this subject here is the idea that there is uh, a relationship between savers and borrowers. So in the economy, there's people that lend money and there's people that borrow that money. So here, a few things to note with respect to vocabulary to make sure that everything is clear is as I've mentioned in the past, investment in this class should be seen as investment into equipment, into uh, like goods that produce uh, other goods like machines or plants or factories. All of those things are investment. So when we use the word investment, we're talking about uh, buying products to become more efficient and more productive or to allow us to produce a certain good or just something we might need. We might need a computer to be able to uh, take down all of our expenses and our revenues to fill out our financial statements at the end of the year. So that is the investment side. That is the people who typically borrow money is comprised of investment. So, and then there's the savers, which are the people who have an excess amount of money and are willing to lend. And typically these two will meet and they'll trade in a certain way. And there's a certain cost associated to that. And that cost will be the interest rate. So whoever's lending money will get a certain level of interest and whoever's borrowing will have to pay that interest. So there's that relationship that exists between lenders and borrowers. And that relationship could exist in many different forms. It could be seen through bonds, stocks, or mutual funds. If you think about saving money, you could say either save as a bond, a stock, or a mutual fund. And those things will be very important for you to know in the future whenever you'll have some disposable income that you'll want to put aside for your retirement. And here I almost made the error to say that you want to invest. Just to be clear here in macroeconomics, when we use the investment word, we're talking about like 
buying things for productive reasons. And when we use the savings word, we're talking about putting money aside to generate interest income or different types of income. So buying bonds, stocks, or mutual funds are seen as savings in this class. So a bond is uh, a relationship between the issuer of the bond and whoever has that piece of paper, that contract, that states that a certain date they will give you back a certain amount of money. So a simple example would be a zero-coupon bond which matures in, let's say, one year, but it could be in 20 years. And in 20 years or in one year, whoever holds this bond, this piece of paper, gets $1,000 back. So if you're going to buy this piece of paper now in the hopes of earning money in the future, so if you're going to lend money, you're the saver, you're going to buy it at a discount. You're going to buy it for less than $1,000 so that when you get your $1,000 in a year's time, you've made a certain level of interest. So you might make sell it, buy it at nine fifty, and over the year you get about fifty dollars of interest, which is roughly speaking five percent. So that would be a bond. A stock, which is something we'll look at less in this class, is when you buy part of a company. So when you're a shareholder, you own a part of the company. Well, normally large companies such as Apple or Tesla or Google that are online that you could buy. There's like tons and tons of shareholders. So if you buy one stock of that company, you own a very small share of that company. If the company gains value uh, or has a more better prospect of uh, being profitable in the future, typically the value of that stock, that share, that part ownership of the company also goes up in value. Later on, we're going to see that stocks are good if you expect a lot of inflation because typically as inflation hits, Stocks are protected by it because all the assets of the company will typically go up in value as all the price in the economy goes up in price, whereas a bond would not be sheltered from inflation. But that's a future story. And a mutual fund is typically you buying a fund that is created by a portfolio manager from an institution, and depending on your risk profile and what you're aiming for, it's going to be a combination of bonds and stocks and maybe treasury bills and other kind of uh, instruments out there to get the kind of risk return relationship that you're going for. And then when we think about a financial system, uh, one of the discussions that we have is the idea of promoting savings is good because promoting savings leads to more money available for investment purposes. And that's the degree of investment in the country that leads to long-term growth. Uh, but promoting savings leads to consuming less in the short term, which is not necessarily good for an economy that might be recovering from a recession. So it's trying to find that balance. We don't look at the long-term impacts as much at this class, but in future macroeconomics classes, you'll see more of that kind of idea of the impacts of what we ha are doing now on future generations or future years. So saving more is not necessarily good for the economy right now. But if you think of all the big businesses or even the government who kind of invested in infrastructure and in a country, well, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have much productive capacity. If you think of very poor nations versus rich nations, the big difference 
and why we can produce more and better than they do is typically just because we have better resources, better infrastructure than they do. So that is definitely beneficial for the future. So if we think about savings and investment, there is a relationship between the two. And if you look at the equations found in the slides and video, you'll see that savings is equal to investment in a closed economy. And the reason for that being that if you take that equation that we had for calculating GDP using the expenditure approach, you remove net exports because we're treating this as a closed economy for now. So you have that total income or total wealth or products created in a year. Y or GDP is equal to C plus I plus G. Well, if you take that total income and you remove the C and the G part, well, you're removing what's being spent for consumption reason, you're removing what's being spent for government reasons. Well, if you remove those components, you're left with the amount of money that's saved. And that amount of money that's being saved between households or private individuals and the government, national saving. And that national saving has to be equal to I, because if you look at that equation, it is an identity. It has to be equal to one another. So here, uh, savings is equal to investment. So private saving plus public saving is equal to investment in the equilibrium state. And that's an important thing to consider is that later on, we're going to have a savings curve, an investment curve. And here, we're always talking about that they're equal to one another in that equilibrium state. And so that's why we'll have that kind of equilibrium level where both curves intersect, such as a supply and demand diagram. And at that level is where we have uh, the, the interest rate that's going on and the kind of situation that we have in our economy. And then if things shift, similarly to microeconomics, if things shift, the supply of savings curve shifts or the demand for investment reason curve shifts, well, then you'll have a new equilibrium with a different interest rate and a different level of quantity of money exchange between the parties. So if we think about private savings, well, private savings is essentially the amount of money that you earn minus how much you owe in taxes minus how much you spend for consumption reasons. And if you kind of separate out all the equation, you could see how that's construction and you could see how that is the case. Whereas public saving is the amount of money that's generated by taxes minus what's being spent by the government. If you think about it, if they generate $200 billion worth of taxes and they only spend $180 billion, well, they're effectively saving $20 billion. But they might be spending more than they're generating, such as the case during the pandemic. And in that situation there, they're in a budget deficit and they're accumulating debt or they have negative savings during that period. Negative savings or borrowing is the same thing. But we would still treat that component within the savings diagram. They're not, uh, we're not looking at the demand for investment here. We're looking at the supply of savings. So then you could have a series of questions that asks you to uh, determine what's the level of public saving taxes and so on and so forth. And for anything that's mathematical in any class, you must practice. Easy mistakes always happen. Uh, I've seen people make simple mistakes recently on very simple questions, mathematically speaking, and it's just because they it was their first shot at it and they kind of screwed up as soon as they figured it out. 
super easy afterwards. Uh, just make sure you practice. So practice those slides, work through it, and do your best. And then if we think about the supply and the demand for um, investment reasons and supply of savings, well, we could understand why the supply of savings is upward sloping and the investment demand is downward sloping. Let's just try to break them out and try to understand why that's the case. So let's look at supply of savings to start off. So why would this curve be upward sloping with interest rates on the vertical axis? Well, that means that there's a positive relationship between the interest rate and the amount of money that you're willing to save. Well, that kind of makes sense. If uh, you have a bit of spare income in your checking account, like let's say a thousand, and the interest rate is like zero, zero point five, point seventy five percent, you might not have much of an incentive to put that money aside for a short term uh, before you have to use it for rent or food or anything else. But as that interest rate goes up to 5, 10, 20, 30%, then even if it's a short term, you're going to have a lot more incentive to put that money aside and uh, generate that interest revenue because it's much more costly for you to just keep it in your bank account, not generating any interest. So that's an easy way to see that there's a positive relationship between the supply of savings and the demand uh, and, uh, and the interest rate. Whereas the demand for investment purposes here, once again, you're buying stuff. Well, if the interest rate you have to pay is really high, you're not going to borrow all that much. But as interest rates fall, uh, you might be tempted to buy a new ATV, a new car, uh, anything. It could be new or old. You'll be tempted to buy something with lower interest rates. It doesn't have to be only investment purposes. You could decide to buy uh, concert tickets to see a show anything uh, on credit, but you will demand more money uh, in a lower interest rate setting. But here, if we just focus on the demand for investment, that also follows that negative relationship that when interest rates are lower, the quantity demanded for investment reasons are higher. And if interest rates go up, the quantity demanded for investment reasons goes down. So Similarly to microeconomics, once you've established that relationship, the big thing that we always have to remember is that these curves, when they're represented in two-dimensional diagrams, represent a relationship between two things and two things only. So everything else in the economy is seen as constant. So when we're talking about that relationship, we're saying, well, if interest rates goes up, the quantity supplied will go up. Naturally, that's what we expect. But that is assuming every single other thing in the market is constant. So if I just focus on one of the two curves and I ask myself, well, if at 5% I was saving $120 or $120 billion, what would be the situation that would influence me as an individual or the government to either save more or save less than before at that same interest rate? Or you could ask yourself, what would have to happen for me to want to need a lower interest rate or a higher interest rate to keep on saving $120 billion? So if I think about it, what could influence me to save more or save less? Um, I could have a situation that is not the interest rate. Well, I could have a situation that the interest that I earn is no longer taxable when it used to be. So the introduction of a registered retirement savings plan, or REAR in French, RRSPs in English, 
or the introduction of tax-free savings account or city in French uh, have created an incentive to increase the supply of savings because then afterwards when you put money aside to generate interest well if you're generating five percent interest and you keep that whole five percent in your bank account after the year end it's much more desirable than if you were to have to declare that to the government and interest income and because you're earning a lot of money you only keep three percent of those earnings at the end of the year uh, three instead of five so you only keep like a little bit more than half so in that situation when you remove that uh, taxable benefit and you make it a tax-free account it's going to increase the level of savings at that same interest rate uh, if you have higher consumption taxes well people will consume less they'll save more and for both of those that's based on the consumer but uh, at the same time if you increase taxes or you decrease government spending and you have a greater government budget surplus well naturally we saw that National saving is private plus public savings. So if public saving goes up because of a greater budget surplus than expected or a smaller deficit than expected, we're going more towards the, the surplus side of things. Uh, it's going to lead to more savings. So we could play around with that. You could have different examples, a story that's given to you that's going to shift the supply curve. But before we do so, let's just talk about what would impact investment. So if we think about the idea here, once again, that investment is purchasing goods, well, what could it make it more attractive for you as a business to want to buy more goods? Well, naturally, if the economy is doing well and you see this new market being developed that's going to be very lucrative over the next few years, well, that's going to introduce more demand for investment reasons. Like if you see potential in a new product and we have the resources necessary here, that's going to increase investment. But then what are the government policies that could influence the level of investment that is not interest rates, once again, because that's represented by the graph that we have. What can make the demand for investment reasons shift? Well, that could be an investment tax credit. So you borrow money as an investor who's uh, buying equipment, but that money that you borrow is uh, like tax deductible. So all of a sudden, or you have like a, credit or you have something else that makes it less costly all of a sudden so if you could have a tax advantage that uh, yields uh, the, the purchasing of equipment cheaper uh, it's going to lead you to purchase more if we think about electric cars there was the idea that you can fully amortize the purchase of an electric car like a hundred percent of it in the first year uh, to promote the purchase of electric cars uh, whereas normally you wouldn't be able to amortize a whole amount. So it has a, a certain benefit from a fiscal standpoint. So things like that could influence the demand for investment reasons. And at the end of the day, it's whatever store you're looking at, you're trying to figure out, as in micro, the idea that you have a demand curve, you have a supply curve. If you hear of a news event, which of the two curves will shift? That's always the first question you should ask yourself. Then once you've established which of the two curve shifts and which direction. So if you think, you could either think about it in the perspective of if the interest rates were the same, would I borrow more or less? Would I save more or less? And then that will tell you in which direction the savings curve or the demand curve will go. 
And once again, a little bit of practice will make you guys successful here. So uh, once you've created that, then you could say, well, it shifts, you draw it out, and then you could see what's the impact overall. So if the demand for investment purposes shifts right, we see that the new equilibrium will lead to a higher interest rate and a higher level of quantity of savings in the market, but the savings curve hasn't changed. So it's not because there's a lot more borrowers that want to borrow money that uh, the savings curve relationship between quantity of savings and the interest rate has changed. It's true that as more investors want to borrow money, it's going to put an upward pressure on interest rates, which is going to increase the incentive of savers to save more. But at the end of the day, if the story does not talk about things that would change the level of savings, such as introduction of RSPs, a tax-free savings account, or any of those external factors that we talked about, the savings curve has no reason to shift. So in this chapter, the whole thing that you have to remember is keeping in mind the, the relationship between savings and investment. As we see from the graphs, they're equal to one another. If they're not equal, uh, there's either going to be an upward pressure on the interest rate if it's below or a downward pressure if it's above. Because if you have an excess supply and excess demand for money, uh, it leads to that kind of pressure. If more people want money than what is currently available by the suppliers, it's going to drive the interest rate up, which would have been the case if we had an interest rate that is below that intersection point. And the opposite is also true. So you have to understand that they're both linked, that if you want to have more investment going on in the economy, you have to have more savings. And that savings can either come from the government and public saving or the individuals and private saving. So that's the whole picture that you have to remember. There's a lot of little examples and segments of the curve shifting. And at the end of the day, you always have to just come back to the idea of does the supply curve shift, does the demand for investment curve shift, and for what reason, and just draw it out. But I'd say definitely take a look at the textbook and practice and make sure this is clear because things will get more complicated once we introduce a worldwide market, once we open up the economy and now we have trade. And in that case there, savings no longer will need to be equal to investment. You could have foreign money coming in to pay for our purchases or our money might be leaving and we'll see how all of that works in the future. So I hope you enjoyed this small audio chat and I'll talk to you soon.